Hey, everybody. A quick note before the show. I have just finished reading, I mean, literally about an hour ago, I have just finished reading a new novel by former Elder Sign guest host, Sun Yi Dean, and I really love this book, and I think that you will too, so I want to tell you a little bit about it. The book is called The Book Eaters, and, uh, well, is exactly what it says on the box there. It is about people who eat books. The story is set in the real world, our world, but the speculative element is that there is a hidden society, a secret society of people who look like humans, but aren't. And the fact that they consume books instead of pizza is really just one part of what makes them different from the rest of us. And getting a chance to explore this really evocative, really imaginative world that Dean has constructed, this was a huge part of the fun for me. Thematically, the book is an awesome exploration of the fairy tales that we give to children, and then also the fantasy literature that has grown out of that fairy tale tradition. And let me read a, a few lines to you, just to give you a taste, a little tease. They were princesses, of a kind, and this was how princesses lived. Safe in towers, married to men who competed for them, one way or another. Even in the happiest fairy tales, princesses did not usually have much choice. They were prizes to be won or given away, and there was no other context in which she could understand life. And if that passage grips you the way that it gripped me, I hope you'll do yourself a favor and pick up a copy of The Book Eaters by Sonia Dean. To make that easy for you, I have put a link in the show notes, but of course, you'll also be able to find this book at your local shop. Again, that is The Book Eaters by Sonia Dean. <laughs> All right. Welcome back to the show. Hello, everybody. I'm Glenn McDormand, and this is ATOS, your Mutants Are People 2 speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. So this month, we are making a very quick return to the world of superhero comics by reading God Loves, Man Kills, an X-Men book by Chris Claremont. This was originally published in 1982. And I have essentially no experience with the X-Men. This is very different from my history with Batman, my whole relationship with Batman. I've never read any X-Men comics. And while I am aware that there is a sprawling X-Men film franchise, I've only ever seen two of these movies. And that was uh, The Last Stand, which was really bad. But I got to see in Colorado with Brandon Buda, my co-host on other podcasts. And at least it was a fun time, even if the movie was terrible. And I've also seen Days of Future Past. And I guess I have seen some of the standalone Wolverine movies which are part of this as well. And I did really enjoy The Wolverine, which was essentially a hard-boiled detective story. I like that one quite a bit, in fact. And while I was reading this book, I, I looked into a little bit more of that film franchise, and I decided that I needed to check out some of the music for the X-Men films, because I love film scores. Uh, this was something that I did with Batman as well when we were doing the, the Scott Snyder Batman book. And I got really into John Ottman's work, especially for X-Men 2, which it turns out is loosely based on this book. So it worked out that I made that the soundtrack of my reading of God Loves, Man Kills. But... All of this is really just to say that this is a massive gap in my pop cultural knowledge, and I'm glad now to be filling it, at least a, a little bit, a tiny bit probably is what we should say. Uh, and by the way, I do also want to say that covering some X-Men was a suggestion by one of our listeners after I did Batman, and I'm really grateful for that suggestion. But all right, let's, uh, let's do it. Let's jump into God Loves, Man Kills. 
Now, I know that when I did Batman, I said that Batman needed no introduction and then really didn't give an introduction. And that might be mostly true for the X-Men too, but it's actually not true for me. So while that might be pedantic, I I do want to start by talking about some features of the X-Men in particular and then the Marvel Comics universe more broadly before we get into the particulars of this story. Unlike the DC Comics universe, which takes place in a speculative world that is really grafted on top of our own, right? It's a world where New York and Chicago exist, but also where Gotham and Metropolis exist too. Unlike that, the Marvel Comics universe is just our world. It's got its own secret history and it's diverged at times, but it's still our world and really only our world. Also, unlike DC, Marvel has generally been pretty serious about its continuity, about maintaining that every story has happened and is part of one continuous story, even if sometimes it seems like two things can't both be true, can't both have happened. Though Marvel also has recently done a reboot, which uh, seemed inevitable, I guess, following the success of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the purchase of the company by Disney. And I have, in fact, read a lot of Marvel comics. I love Spider-Man. I've read a lot of Avengers stuff from the first decade of this millennium. Uh, Basically, I've read whatever Brian Michael Bendis has written. And the X-Men are a part of this comics universe. They're a part of this speculative fiction setting. But they've also always been something of a self-contained storytelling world within that setting. So while the rest of the Marvel universe shifts around and teams up and breaks up and so on... The X-Men didn't really get involved in that stuff, unless it was a a truly big crossover event, Uh, with the exception of Wolverine, I guess, who has spent some time as an Avenger. I've read a lot of that. So who are the X-Men? Well, they're a team of superheroes, and in this case, they are specifically a team of people who have developed superpowers through a mutation of the X-Gene. It's a a totally made-up thing. Nobody actually has an X-Gene. And they are called mutants because of this mutation. Now, this differentiates them from other superheroes in this speculative world who, for example, have turned awesome after being bitten by a radioactive spider, or being exposed to some kind of ray, or are just an awesome engineer with a combat suit, or are an alien Norse god or, or something, right? You know these characters. And there is a massive number of heroes who have been on or affiliated with the X-Men over the last 60 years. The original lineup was Angel, Beast, Iceman, Jean Grey, and Cyclops. Cyclops is the only one of them in this story, and he is called Cyclops because he shoots an energy beam out of his eyes. This isn't something he can control naturally, so he has some protective eyewear that he has to has to wear. The other team members appearing in this book are Nightcrawler, who can teleport and who doesn't appear human. In fact, he looks rather devilish with a pointed tail and cleft feet. There is Colossus, who can turn himself into metal and therefore also doesn't always appear human. Uh, We also have Kitty Pride, who can move through objects, Storm, who can control the weather, and Wolverine, who has adamantine claws and really likes cigars. The X-Men train under the guidance of Professor Charles Xavier, Professor X, if you will, who, of course, has been played by Captain Picard in the films, and he'll play an important role in this story. Also important will be the X-Men's arch-nemesis Magneto, who can do stuff with metal and was played by Gandalf in the films. Now, this story was originally written as a short, standalone graphic novel, a story that stood outside of canon, though it has since been retconned into it. Uh, The story is simple. This really is a short story and not a novel. It's only 60 pages long, and it is about one central idea. But this also means that it's very direct. This is a story with a mission. It's a story with a purpose, and it doesn't waste any time getting to that. 
As is so often the case in superhero comics, the plot revolves around the villain, who in some ways is the protagonist. That's really what happens in comics. Uh, there is really the protagonist in the sense that he has objectives and is trying to overcome obstacles in order to achieve them. And here, the villain is William Stryker, a Christian preacher. He's not wearing any particular type of vestment. seems to be his own boss, so I think it's clear we're talking about American evangelicalism here. And he does seem to be something of a TV evangelist. And he is the head of the worldwide evangelical striker crusade and his deal is this he's on a crusade against mutants striker believes that mutants are the creation of hell not the creation of heaven that mutants are the instrument of satan and therefore must be defeated and by defeated he means killed right he wants to hunt down round up and kill all the mutants the story opens with his lieutenant and a heavily armed paramilitary unit chasing down a pair of kids a brother and sister and then executing them in a, a playground, and then hanging them from the swing set with the word muty written across them. And this is unmistakably a lynching. I mean, the imagery here could not be more clear. Now, this part of the Stryker crusade is carried out in secret. I, I mean, it's violating a lot of laws, but Stryker is directly involved in it, even while he is publicizing his anti-mutant agenda on TV and at rallies. He goes on a TV news program to debate with Professor X about whether mutants are dangerous and whether mutants count as people. And he's charismatic. People watching this debate believe that Professor X won maybe on an intellectual level, but that Stryker appealed to base emotions and therefore won or certainly convinced more people than Professor X did. But winning this debate wasn't even why Stryker went on the TV show. It turns out that he just wanted to lure Professor X out of his school so that he could have him tailed and then have him abducted because Stryker wants to use Professor X's psychic powers to telepathically kill all the mutants around the world in one swift move. Part of this abduction involves faking the death of Professor X and uh, some of the other X-Men who were with him. The paramilitary goons make it look like a car accident. And so the plot of the middle part of the story involves the X-Men figuring that out and then doing something about it across a, a number of subplots. And this is all well done, right? Each of the X-Men gets something to do here uh, in this part of the story. But this is all really resolved in a big climax when Stryker is holding a rally at Madison Square Garden in Manhattan. It's a rally attended by tens of thousands of people, including at least one U.S. senator and perhaps even someone on the president's staff, which suggests just how powerful Reverend Stryker and his crusade are. I mean, you know, he also owns an entire Manhattan skyscraper, which is financially out of reach for most churches, in my experience. The idea here is that as Stryker is delivering his big speech, Professor X, who's been drugged and brainwashed and hooked up to a machine, will use his psychic powers to find all the mutants and melt their brains. But of course, Stryker's plan doesn't work out. Magneto shows up, and then the X-Men show up, and they shut down the machine and save Professor X. But Stryker continues to fight, even as his evil plan has clearly been foiled by the heroes. He has a gun, and he points it at Kitty Pride, a teenage girl, and he does this in front of his live audience, and also in front of his TV audience, and just as he is going to shoot, Stryker himself is shot by a police officer. And that's the end of the plot, and, and that's the end of our recap segment as well, so let's get into some themes. We can jump right into them. Because this is such a short piece, there really is one central theme here, and it's bigotry. Reverend Stryker is not a nice person. Although he's a Christian cleric, he is not especially interested in the Gospels. He's certainly not interested in the portion of Matthew called the Judgment of Nations or the Sheep and the Goats. He's one of these preachers who thinks that none of the text matters between Deuteronomy and Revelations, though he does quote Matthew 10 at one point, but uh, he does also clearly misunderstand that bit of the text. Stryker is not using the wealth of his organization to feed the hungry or shelter the homeless or cure the sick. 
Instead, he uses that wealth to aggrandize himself with a whole skyscraper, an expensive suit, he's got a car with a driver, and more importantly, he uses that wealth to fund an illegal paramilitary organization that hunts down and shoots children. And we never really learn why. Sure, we we do get some backstory about Stryker, and I'll talk about that in a moment, but for all his quoting of scripture, he never lays out any scriptural or theological argument for why he believes that mutants are not people, not humans, and why they are evil and must be killed. Rather, all he does is talk about fear. He fears that mutants will attack humans simply because some mutants have superpowers that can make them better at purveying violence. But at the same time, he does not seem to worry at all about people who are really good at archery or knife throwing or who are expert marksmen or great martial artists. He doesn't seem to worry about gun regulations or cycles of abuse or other social and legal factors that can lead to violence. And so it's clear that his desire to exterminate mutants is really driven by fear. It's driven by a hatred of difference and that the violence he talks about is really, really merely just a a justification for that hatred. And this is something that we see when we do get his backstory, which is quite disturbing. Stryker served in the army, he was involved in nuclear testing, and he and his wife decided to have a baby, and they had to deliver the baby while traveling, so they were alone on the side of the road. And we don't see the baby in the art, but Stryker tells us that it was a monster. And so he killed the baby, he killed his newborn baby with his knife because it looked monstrous to him. And then this gets even worse. He he breaks his wife's neck. And this is something that he tells us, he tells the audience directly, as a matter of fact. He he doesn't at this point explain why he did any of these things. And a few sentences later, he explains that he later prayed for guidance. He, he prayed for a message from God about how this could have happened. Uh, and here's what he says. The sin was my wife's. She was the vessel used by God to reveal unto me Satan's most insidious plot against humanity, to corrupt us through our children while they were still in the womb. The Lord created man and woman in his image, blessed with his grace. Mutants broke that sacred mold. They were creations not of God, but of the devil, and I have been chosen to lead the fight against them. So, for Stryker, this is entirely about bodies, but specifically it's about bodily appearance. Humans are meant to look like God, and if they don't, then they aren't human. And if they aren't human, they must be killed. But what is his criteria for looking like God? Because clearly he believes that both men and women resemble God, even though men and women have a lot of physiological differences. You can look at parts of their bodies and say they don't look the same. But those differences don't matter. Later, he also says that skin color doesn't matter, even though that is a difference. And presumably that also extends to hair color and eye color and height and shape and so on, all things that are differences. And of course, while some mutants, such as Nightcrawler, have a lot of physical traits that humans don't, Stryker equally wants to kill the mutants who do, such as Professor X and Kitty Pryde and Storm, all of whose mutation doesn't manifest in their appearance, in in their image. So it's not really about the image of God either. And we can point out other errors in his thinking and other errors in his messaging. I mean, just, you know, glaringly here on the page, he says in the same breath that the devil created his mutant child, but also that God did it. So which is it, Stryker? And it's clear that he is mentally unwell, that he simply is a person full of anger, and he is looking for someone to take out that anger on. And I have to wonder if somewhere he doesn't really understand that it was exposure to radiation, that it was the army that mutated his baby. So all of his rhetoric is about justifying his anger, right? None of his rhetoric is rational. None of it is logical. None of his arguments actually support his claims. It's just anger and hatred and bigotry. 
And that's explicit in the text when Kitty Pride compares the way that members of the Striker Crusade talk about and treat mutants to the persecution of black people in the United States. And she even uses the N-word here, which was shocking to me, but it was also powerful. And of course, the story opens with a lynching, right? The parallel is clear. And Claremont takes this even further by giving Cyclops, Scott Summers, a speech directed at Stryker that more or less paraphrases the rhetoric of Martin Luther King Jr. He argues that people ought to be judged by the content of their character, not the code of their genes. And if we're judging by character, Stryker, who orders and funds the murder of children, is going to come up lacking. All right. There is more going on in this book, but this is the central theme, and I I think it's great. I think it's a real strength of the book. Somehow, as as kids and teenagers, we all think that fear and bigoted othering is a thing of the past, that it's a a sad legacy of our great-grandparents and our grandparents' day, or even sometimes our parents' day. But then we grow up, and we find that it isn't gone. It's here. It's just that the target has changed. And so, while this story is on the nose— It needs to be. We need stories with this theme, and we need stories with this theme to be crystal clear. And Claremont has done an excellent job of this. One of the elements of this story that I really enjoyed was the way that Claremont practices what he preaches. He clearly dreams of a pluralistic society, and quietly, without really drawing any attention to it, at least in this story, he makes the X-Men organization about as pluralistic as you can get. There are men and women, young and old, Jews and Christians, Americans and foreigners, and and Russians especially, right? This is still the Cold War. Uh, There's not a lot of diversity of skin color in the X-Men, I will say, but there are black mutants and other black characters here. And while this simply isn't a story with any romance or any sexuality, we do have Professor X in a wheelchair. So there is a a real diversity of bodies and identities here within the X-Men that is just subtly there in a story about pluralism. This is a very Star Trek move, I'll say. I don't really have anything that I want to label as a weakness for this book. I I enjoyed the heck out of it, and I think it does exactly what great science fiction is supposed to do. But I will say that I don't love the art, and and that's not a knock on Brent Anderson, who I think did a fine job. I just don't love the art of this era of comics. But that said, I think there are some excellent panels, and I want to pick a favorite. This is something we do over on Hanging Out with the Dream King, our Neil Gaiman podcast, where we are still reading our way through the Sandman, though we are finally about halfway through at this point. And I really liked the flashback sequence in which we get Reverend Stryker's backstory. And this is done in sepia tone to let us know it's a flashback. And there's one panel of this that is just a a fist clutching a knife. It's a, a knife pointed downward and ready to stab. Now, it is probably morbid to pick this panel, I know. But what I like most about it is that it shows the brutality of Stryker's action, even though that's something that his expository monologue actually tries to hide, because he simply says, I did what had to be done. But the art doesn't let him off the hook. And in fact, I think the the contrast here makes him even more monstrous. Well, that is going to bring my review to a close. It's a short one this month, but this is also the shortest book that we've done. And I really did want to stay laser focused on the central theme. So I hope that you'll visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com and talk with me about that central major theme that I have focused on, but especially on what I've left out. And because I wanted to emphasize the message against bigotry, I didn't talk about some of the other things that are going on here about mass media, about demagoguery. Uh, these are things that have become even more important for us as our tools have continued to to change since the 1980s. And I'd also love to hear about your experience with the X-Men, your favorite storylines, your favorite characters. And if you have thoughts about the film adaptation of this story, I'd be interested in that too. I haven't gone and watched it yet, but uh, I don't know. That might be a fun thing to do over as a a Patreon episode or something. But all right, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at Clay Temple Media. 
Next time, we're going to be reading The Book of Three by Lloyd Alexander. This is one of my cherished childhood treasures, something I'm very excited about revisiting. But until then, until next time, until next month, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world.